4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, by Oliver Berkman. Hi, this is Jonathan Marks. Today I'll be sharing my review of the book 4,000 Weeks. I read this book on Kindle. It was published in 2021 and is 290 pages long. Well, if you're anything like me, you've read, adopted, and probably misapplied many time management systems over the years. What started for me with Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People has seemed like a long and tedious journey through planners, apps, and to quote Berkman, expensive notebooks and felt-tip pens. The search for the perfect time management system and the time to just clear the decks, another Berkman quote, is akin to my own search for the Holy Grail. So what really grabbed me about this book, one of many related to productivity and time management, published in the last few years, was that it's definitely not a system of time management, despite the title alluding to this fact. Coupled with this is the wonderfully self-deprecating nature of the writer, something far more common with British writers, although to be fair Berkman does live in the US, than the somewhat self-promoting tendencies of those across the pond. Berkman is a professional writer and has a masterful command of the English language. He's a former journalist for The Guardian, where he wrote a column for many years on self-improvement, self-help, and the myriad alternative ways in which to improve or hack your life. This has given him a wealth of knowledge and insight, and he brings all of this to bear, along with an exceptionally good reference list to the writing of 4,000 Weeks. The book is dense without being tedious. I say dense because Berkman expertly melds together sociology, history, psychology, politics, philosophy, even Stoic wisdom, along with wonderful stories and anecdotes into this incredibly engaging manuscript. The book title is taken from the very sobering fact that most of us will live no more than 4,000 weeks. If you are like me and on the wrong side of 50, this means you have a scant 1,300 weeks left. And it's this undeniable and unavoidable fact that lies at the centre of Berkman's thesis. We have limited time. It is constantly diminishing, and no matter how wealthy, bright, or well-connected you are, you still only get your single measure, and then the game is up. With time as one of our few non-renewable resources, why, suggests Berkman, would you use that time for anything except that which is most important to you? The promise of so many time management systems is that with careful scheduling, defending of one's time, good list-making, you will get it all done. Berkman essentially calls bullshit on this idea. The more painful truth, he suggests, is that you will not get it all done, and moreover, you are unlikely to get to make a profound difference in the world either. What you can, however, do is make a profound and massive difference in your world and in your life. And that's what our work should be, is to discern between what is truly important and a priority for you and everything else that just clogs up your inbox and your to-do list. Much of what you intend to do, hope to achieve, plan to accomplish, will simply not happen. Not because you're not skilled, ambitious or capable, but because there is infinite demand on limited time. In the end, as I read Berkman's book, this is just simply pure maths. Berkman takes the reader on a wonderful journey through some of the time before time was such a thing, really before clocks govern so much of our lives. Had you lived in rural medieval England, he suggests, you would have lived your life according to the seasons. 
planting, sowing, reaping as the weather and rain dictated, rising each day with the sun and ending your day as the sun set. This is all fine and well, but the problem comes along when you want to coordinate your activities and work with others. And this gave rise to the clock and to scheduling. What we live with now, though, is a slavish devotion to the clock, and for many of us our time seems to not be our own. This, argues Berkman, is actually correct. We never really have time, he suggests. We can't own time, like a car or shoes. What we have is an expectation of time, but this is always future time. Time never comes into our possession. So much interrupts our time, a phone call, a sick child, a flight or train delay. The list goes on and on. What you have is the moment at which time unfolds. And according to Berkman, who quotes Heidegger, what is more accurate is that time has us, and our lives are just a sequence of moments of time. What we live with each day is the reality of our finitude, the knowledge that our life is finite and will eventually end. Why we lean into all of this time management and life hacking is as a bulwark, as a defense against this undeniable reality. But no matter what we do, life ends, and with it, our ever-growing and bloated to-do lists. I know this may sound somewhat depressing, and before you switch off this podcast and check your social media feed, Berkman offers some wonderful strategies to deal with this reality, and I suspect some ways to be more productive, at least with regards to what really counts. The first is to try and avoid the instrumentalization of time. This is where we see time as a resource or an instrument with which we achieve our goals. When we instrumentalize time, we tend to miss all that happens in the moment as we focus on the future outcome that will be achieved through our application of time. This gives rise to what Berkman calls a when-I-finally mindset a kind of future focus that pulls us out of the present moment. The mindfulness movement has brought much of this to our attention, but the consequences of being overly future-focused are dire. Berkman, referring to one of my favorite authors, speakers and writers, Sam Harris, makes the point that thanks to finitude, at some point each thing we do will be for the last time. So, here's to you being fully present in the moment. The second is the importance of rest. Berkman makes the point that we now consider rest as largely the pause in our work life, taken to recover and prepare ourselves for more work. We have somehow, as the writer Walter Kerr, quoted by Berkman says, become compelled to read for profit, party for contacts, gamble for charity, and stay home for the weekend to rebuild the house. Despite us actually having more leisure time than in years past, We don't seem to use it very well. Our need for pathological productivity drives so much of our activity and is so lauded and rewarded by our consumer-driven culture, it's obvious why we spend so much time working. So rest should be taken, and one of the suggestions from Berkman is to look to something like the Jewish Sabbath. This idea of taking a total break from all work, including technology, may in fact give us back more time than it seems to cost. Berkman quotes the theologian Walter Brugman, who describes the Sabbath as that one day in the week that we live, and I quote, in the awareness and practice of the claim that we are situated on the receiving end of the gifts of God, end quote. One of the ways he suggests engaging in real rest is through hobbies, 
not hobbies as a side hustle or something for gain, but just pure, true, amateurish enjoyment. Berkman presents a wonderful story of the musician Rod Stewart, whose hobby is, if you can believe it, model train building. It appears Sir Rod is a, is a real enthusiast and has even travelled with the layout he has been working on for many years, requiring a separate hotel room to set this up while on tour. So consider how you rest. Is it a rest or is it a pause in your busyness in order to just prepare you for more busyness? The third strategy is to cultivate patience. We're increasingly more and more impatient. I'm sure as this podcast unfolds, you're looking to see how long there is to go, given all you still need to do in your day. And of course, technology has played a profound role in ensuring that we won't even wait a few seconds for a web page to load. But this impatience impacts so much of our lives and the quality thereof. It's not for nothing, says Berkman, that the word rush means both to hurry and the exhilaration we feel from doing something exciting or thrilling. Impatience and rushing are in fact addictive. But what we fail to do is to give the time required to the task at hand, whether that's a work project, a hobby, reading a book, or even watching your child play. Berkman quotes California-based psychotherapist Stephanie Brown, who, working with high-status overachievers in Silicon Valley, noticed strong similarities with addiction, a battle she had had to overcome in her life. Brown, drawing on the 12-step program, says addicts must acknowledge that they are powerless over their addiction, and only then can they recover. She advocates the same for those of her patients who are addicted to busyness. When you let the fantasy of being totally in control of your schedule just crumble, you enter a stage where you can dive into a challenging project that you know can't be hurried, and to have no stressful emotions about getting it done quickly. You become clear-eyed about your limitations. You develop patience. Finally, our time and how we spend our time and allocate it is essentially a social construct. For example, the reason why an annual vacation is so cool is that we get to spend it with others. This challenge of sinking time is often at the heart of our frustration with trying to schedule social engagements. Trying to align multiple calendars is always difficult. Berkman reports some interesting research out of Sweden that found a relationship between mental health and vacation time. I guess this is largely unsurprising. When people are on holiday, they feel happier. But what the researchers found, more interestingly, was that when more people are on holiday at the same time, there is a greater sense of happiness, or at least as they measured it, less inclination to depression. Um, Berkman also mentions this wonderful Swedish tradition of fika, the time taken each morning in the workplace, uh, and, and I'm guessing in, at home as well, to break for coffee, cake, and conversation. This idea of keeping time together is at the core of this strategy. That as social beings, we tend towards a sense of keeping in step, whether through choral singing, dancing, or even sport. These are social pastimes that keep us connected to one another. Berkman closes this very interesting book with five questions to consider and ten tools for embracing your finitude. This is the closest he gets to providing anything that might look remotely like a system of time management. But the questions and the tools are not simple or easy and will require much honest reflection if you want to make them count. I've included these questions and the tools in the companion infographic. I personally took great comfort from this book 
and the invitation to give myself over to the reality of finitude and that I'll simply not get it all done was in fact liberating for me. So what do we do next? Well, Berkman closes the book with a wonderful story from Jung, and in the end he paraphrases Jung by saying, just do the next right thing. I think this is the perfect end to this book. I really hope you found this short podcast useful. Please do like and share my posts on LinkedIn so I can share these reviews with as wide an audience as possible. I would love to hear your thoughts, comments and feedback, so feel free to reach out to me. I endeavor to answer all of my email. I hope you have an absolutely wonderful week.